it only took split seconds to go from 500 feet to hitting the ground. When my mate reached down and grabbed my arm to move it, I had no feeling anywhere. We have a young lady unconscious. Topic approach 1320. Hi, I'm Landon Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. When the dust was settling around the helicopter, my head was out through the doorway just a little bit, so I had the weight of the bubble of the helicopter on my forehead. My legs were dangling back over my head, and I could see the pilot hanging out of his seatbelt. Jack Downs is a large cattle station in the Northern Territory. When you're talking remote, this is about as remote as you can get. The property is smack bang in the middle of the Northern Territory between Darwin and Alice Springs, with Darwin 760 kilometres to the north and Alice Springs on dirt roads 730 kilometres to the south. The country is composed of rolling hills, tablelands, open and flood-prone plains. Mitchell, Flinders and oat grass is heavy, with mulgars, whitewoods, spinifex and the superjack trees, where the superjack down station gets its name. The station itself is about 3,800 square kilometres along the margins of the Tanami Desert, and it supports a herd of around 8,000 cattle. Rob's parents have lived at superjack for years, and he grew up there with his large and extended family and was living there with his wife Sarah and toddler in 2008 when tragedy struck during a cattle muster. Hi, Rob. Hi. I would love to, first of all, learn a little bit about your upbringing. So my understanding is that you grew up in this remote part of Northern Territory. Could you tell me a little bit about where you grew up? I was actually born in Queensland and I did most of my junior schooling in Queensland. And then it wasn't until I was 15 that we moved to the Northern Territory, um, but I'm one of I'm one of seven uh, kids, and we're all we're all extremely close. We're an extremely close uh, family. Uh, we rely on each other fairly heavily, and and um, we, we've always been close, even as, as little kids, and even now as adults. What sparked that move? Why did your family decide to move at that time? My grandfather and grandmother. They settled on a property. They started it. They're the pioneers of uh, of Superjack Downs Station in the Northern Territory. They they actually um, come to be there in the in the uh, very early sixties, and then they were granted a a um, a, uh, a license to have cattle and what have you there in uh, you know, the mid sixties. Um, and so they'd been there the whole time, on and off um, during that time, and then. Uh, they, you know, just with the way interest rates were and the and the seasons and the, and the cattle prices and things like that, they were they were struggling a little bit to uh, be able to manage it all and to run it all. And so, mum and dad came over to to assist through that process. That's a huge commitment to take the whole family, seven kids in tow, from Queensland to remote Northern Territory. Was that a big like culture shock for you and landscape shock for you and the rest of the kids? 
Yeah, it, it was and it wasn't. Um, we grew up, especially myself, I always, you know, um, you know, romanced about the idea of being a, a ringer or, or living in the Territory or, you know, I read, I read books about, you know, drovers and, and all this sort of thing. So, um, and our upbringing was always on, on uh, within the cattle industry. So it was not, it wasn't new, probably the scope and the scale was extremely new, you know, growing up on, on cattle properties in Queensland, the, the size of the property was relatively small. And, you know, um, we, we had, you know, teachers and school friends that thought living 30, 40 kilometres from school was, was fairly remote. So, um, yes, moving to somewhere that was nine hours drive outside of Alice Springs, um, and that is our closest town, that side of it was a culture shock. But the idea of of um, what was going to be involved, no, it wasn't. It wasn't much of a shock. But as you mentioned, you know, a, a, a huge undertaking from my parents' point of view, especially now, you know, twenty, thirty years later, the realization of what they actually did and why they did it and what they set out to achieve is just nothing short of remarkable. You know, we were quite comfortable. We were happy. On a, on a cattle property in, in a good area, running cattle, and, and us kids had, you know, the world at our feet as far as sports and horse events and rodeo and all this sort of thing as kids. And um, and Dad ran a, he ran a very successful contract yard building and, and fencing business. For him to go, yep, righto, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll move out here and try and be a part of a very unknown and very unsecure future with all my kids and you know, we're going to get rid of everything that we've ever worked for here that we've achieved and we're going to now risk it all to go and live on such a remote cattle station. Yeah, I could only imagine what was going through their mind, but um, nothing short of, of unbelievable. Could you explain um, Supplejack Station in terms of size and landscape? How big is big? Uh, it's a million acres. One million acres. You know, it's it's generally about a five or six hour driving a Land Cruiser to do a ball run out the west, you know, topping up um, diesel, you know, generators and what have you to run the bores to, to water the cattle. But, yeah, so it's it's a fairly big place. And how many head of cattle would normally be on Superjack at any one point? Uh, look, it, it, it'll average around that sort of anywhere from fifteen to 20,000 head of cattle. So, Rob, you move out there at a, as a 15-year-old with your um, siblings, are you? Where do you fit in the sibling range? Are you top, bottom, middle? Oh, I'm pretty much in the middle. I'm the eldest boy. I've got three older sisters above me, and then I've got two younger brothers and a baby sister below me. So I'm pretty much right in the middle. So you head out there. You're 15, and you're already very familiar with working on the land. I understand. Some time on, you're out mustering cattle and you were in a helicopter. Could you explain the process of mustering and how that's done on such a vast station and with such large numbers? I understand you have one or sometimes more than one helicopter. You have motorbikes. Do you have horses as well? Could you explain how that all works? I suppose the you know the mustering techniques in the Northern Territory or on bigger cattle properties differ slightly to, to smaller properties, and that's only because of the vast areas that you've got to travel to bring cattle in. You know, they, we, we, you know, you could muster a paddock that 
it might be a 15 or 20 kilometre walk to bring cattle into into one mob. And essentially the principle is identical on, on any scale, but the idea is to bring the cattle together so you can process them. So in the Territory, we would use helicopters when we needed to. We, we slowly over the years developed paddocks and developed country where we could undergo mustering just on horseback. It's kind of funny because in those really early days, there, there was no money to go throwing at the expenses of a helicopter. So a lot of my most fondest memories was, you know, these 3.30, 4 o'clock starts in the morning and, uh, and we'd saddle up horses and Dad had a you know, little GPS or a map of where we were headed and we'd ride for, you know, four or five hours in the morning to get to a water point and then we'd trap cattle on horseback till we got a bit of a mob together and then we'd do our best to walk some of these cattle to whatever the nearest set of yards were. So uh, it wasn't just me. You know, I had, I had baby brothers and sisters. Uh, my baby sister was was only very young and we, we didn't have nannies or any of that sort of caper that could stay home and, and look after after the young ones. So they had no choice but to saddle up and, and come with us. And so, you know, it's when you're doing 16, 18 you know, ridiculous hours on horseback um, and you can only eat what you can carry and drink what you can carry and that sort of thing. Um, it was a huge undertaking for, for little tiny girls. How old was she, the little youngest? Probably eight, nine, eight or nine years old. Wow. So, all right, so then helicopters come in and were helicopters majorly for the spotting of where cattle was or were you actually using helicopters to also move cattle, or was it a bit of both? It was a little bit of both, yeah. So we'd use helicopters to spot uh, in the sense that they could then direct, um, you know, the foot traffic, whoever's on the ground, whether it be on a motorbike, in a motor car or on a horse. But then they'd also, yeah, 90% of it, they would be they would be shifting cattle. And um, that generally happens the no- off the noise that the helicopters create. So basically, the second a helicopter starts up, you know, there's a hum in the in the background. So cattle get used to it, and um, and even the ones that aren't used to it, they they're not going to hang around to find out what it is. So they will move away from the from the from the noise. And so it was the pilot's job to position his noise in the right place to keep cattle moving in the right direction. Gotcha. Can you tell me about the day when you were up in a helicopter and things didn't go into plan? Yeah. Well, the day was actually going to plan. We were mustering a, a, an area of, of country that cattle had spread right out away from where they would normally have, of, um, have lived or, or, or grazed. Um, we had an extended wet that year and there was surface water in areas there wasn't, wasn't normally surface water, so these cattle spread right out. So we actually organised two helicopters to, uh, to come and give us a hand to do this, to muster this area. And, uh, you know, myself and my brother and brother-in-laws and dad and what have you had been out a few days prior and we'd set up a makeshift yard or a portable set of cattle yards and we'd hung the hessian wing and had everything prepared for when we did gather the cattle together. We could then move them into the yards and and uh, and process them. And um, I was actually flying a gyrocopter that morning. What's a gyrocopter compared with a helicopter? What, what's the difference? Uh, look, they're very similar in... in um, the spinning blades above your head, but the difference is the blades or the rotors that allow the machine to fly, they're not powered. So they only work off airspeed moving through the blades to keep them spinning. So a helicopter's got a motor that runs the blades 
and you can you can add you know revs to to make the blades spin faster essentially. Whereas a gyrocopter, it's essentially like having a fan on your back as a backpack, and it pushes you forward. Ah. And um, so long as you keep air spitting through the the rotors above your head, they'll keep turning, you'll keep flying. A lot of people call them the push bike of the sky, but um, yeah, we we found them to be an incredibly uh, useful tool, and we were very productive with using them. Yeah, so anyway, I was using a gyro to, to muster cattle, um, essentially doing exactly what the helicopters were doing, and uh, and I'd actually just landed back at the stock camp, and uh, it just so happened one of the helicopters flew in to land at the same time, and uh, he was refueling, and we got talking about where we'd all been working cattle because a lot of the a lot of the time you're in the air, you're only a blimp in the sky, so you can't exactly make out where the other machines are flying, uh, even though we keep in touch, you know, via UHF radio. You 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 could spend three or four hours mustering and not see the other guy, and so that was the case that morning, and uh, we just we had a quick discussion about where we'd both been uh, mustering, what areas we were working, and where the cattle were coming in from. And, and anyway, it got a little bit confusing. I said, well, we'll I'll jump in with you and, and I'll take you back out to where I've been working and, and you can pick up the tail of my cattle and, and keep them moving. Anyway, we were just flying straight and level at the time. We were about 500 uh, feet off the ground and uh, we experienced some sort of engine blimp or engine failure and we went from flying to falling in a in a heartbeat. And... Um, it only took, you know, split seconds to go from 500 feet to hitting the ground. And and uh, the pilot, he's a very good mate. He was a very good mate of mine and still is a very good mate of mine. Um, in my opinion, done an incredible job keeping some sort of control of the of the machine when he put it into auto rotation. And where we were, it was, it was a, a pretty tough call to try and find a clear uh, area to actually land the the helicopter, it wasn't like we were flying over, you know, a wheat crop or or there was an airstrip within range. And it just so happened as we were coming down, he'd done his best to to avoid hitting any trees because virtually, you know, without without that engine, it's like taking the steering wheel, you know, off a driver while they're driving. And and um, and uh, he managed to get the machine down onto the skids. As we sort of took him, impact on the ground, the machine went into a slide and uh, we were just unfortunate that the uh, the skid on the helicopter got caught up on a tree root, and um, and it flipped the machine on its side. And once the blades that were real, they were still spinning extremely fast. Once they hit the ground, essentially, it was like a lawnmower on its side. It just trashed itself about the scrub until it burnt off all its energy, and then it landed upside down on the passenger side, which is where I was. And uh, you know, when the when the dust was settling around the helicopter. Uh, my head was out through the doorway just a little bit, so I had the weight of the the um, the bubble of the helicopter on my forehead. And uh, when I opened my eyes, my my legs were dangling back over my my head, and I could see back. I was still in the seatbelt, but I could see back through my legs. I could see the pilot hanging out of his seatbelt above me. And um, yeah, we we were actually talking. We were talking to each other. I wasn't knocked out. We were. Basically going into the, okay, well, that happened. What now?
I've spoken to people, Rob, who've been in car accidents where they're tossing and turning. I, I'm having trouble envisioning being inside a helicopter that is literally flipping and has the blades going round and round. I mean, it's just, that's horrifying. So you're still, you're both conscious. What happens next? Well, I, we, we actually, we were talking about getting out of the helicopter and, you know, the, the bubble of the machine or the windscreen of the machine was partially broken. And um, the only way for, for us to get out was, you know, to go out through the, the windscreen, essentially. We were talking about who was going to get out first and, and, uh, and that's when I realised something was severely wrong because I went to move. I, I essentially subconsciously, you know, saw myself reaching down to, to undo the seatbelt so I could crawl out and um, nothing moved. And um, when my mate reached down and, and grabbed my arm to move it, as he shook it in front of me, it just looked like, you know, it, physically it's impossible, but it looked like a piece of string just dangling around in front of me, which was very foreign to me because I couldn't feel it. I had absolutely no perception of it moving. Um, I had no feeling anywhere. And that's that's when I suppose a, a, a realisation that we were in a lot of trouble really washed over us. And so he, he hopped out through the windscreen and, um, you know, we, we realised that we're still in a machine that was just recently fueled up with, you know, 90 litres of, of aviation fluid and there were still little sparks and what have you happening in the cab, you know, from the UHF and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, we were aware enough to know we had to disconnect the battery and, and do that in a way that didn't create a spark that, uh, that might have the, the helicopter explode. And where the machine was upside down, the fuel, the fuel line was dripping uh, right down next to my face. So we we're aware of all of these things. Uh, there were so many things that that could have gone wrong that didn't, which would have really changed, you know, the 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 overall outcome of of how the day went. But you know, the pilot tried to tried to lift the weight of the the helicopter off my forehead, and um, when we moved the machine only not even an inch, I had like an electric shock go right through my body, which scared the shit out of us, essentially. Once once that happened, then, you know, then we realised that the full extent was definitely, you know, spinal damage. It was definitely, you know, that I was, I was paralysed. And so we just, we weren't really sure what the next go-to plan was. You know, we'd, I'd never been around a spinal injury before. I had no idea or or really any understanding of, of what it entailed. And the pilot was exactly the same, you know, and we, we knew enough to know that you shouldn't shift somebody that's got a suspected... Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, that's, that's what you generally learn from TV and movies and whatever else around is you shouldn't move a person, but there you are, upside down, in a helicopter, fuel dripping, sparks... Uh, what did you do? Well, we, we, we had to move me, um, essentially, because my my breathing became so laboured that I was, I was starting to see stars. And my understanding was I needed to stay conscious. Um, I didn't want to pass out. I didn't want to, um, you know, throw caution in the wind and let it be somebody else's problem. And I, I think that's one of the beauties of growing up in that rural setting, um, 
and 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 almost all, you know, cattlemen, especially on on big spreads in the north, they'll agree in the sense that every day you're taking your life into your own hands. Um, you've got to make decisions which could essentially have the you know the ultimate outcome. So it's it's nothing new to have to make a decision then and there which is going to hold risk and could essentially um, be the wrong decision. But you just you know you, you make these decisions day in day out and you learn to live with them. And and I I guess I was very fortunate that I'd lived such a rough upbringing, such a rough lifestyle. You know whether whether it was football or boxing or or you know it went on to rodeoing when you've been belted from pillar to post and and knocked around you learn to roll with the punches essentially and um and and you know having something broken is not a big shock it's not a big surprise to you know to look down and you've got bleeding limbs or you know to be in a wreck is isn't that big of a a shock to you and I I truly believe that you know through some of the injuries that I sustained especially through the sport of rodeo um, you know whether it was bronc riding or bull riding it definitely played its part in my understanding of the situation of where I was right then and there the one big thing that you learn when you when you grow up on such a remote setting is you can't always rely on somebody else to come and clean your mess up if you you know if you've been injured you've got to deal with it you've got no choice and uh, all those sorts of things they build a form of resilience or they at least allow you to have a mindset that, you know, all this shock and awe and fluffy clouds and rainbows, they're not real. It just, it is what it is. And you're in this situation right now. Um, you've just got to make a decision to do the best you can with what you've got at hand. And and uh, and these are all things that I've, that I've come to realise and I make sense out of that day now. But I, I think subconsciously they're the things that kept me alive during that day and so you know after the pilot stepped out of the machine out of the helicopter I was trying my best to breathe I didn't understand what the spinal damage had done to my ability to breathe at the time but all I knew was I was I was becoming very labored and so I I thought that it might have been the fact that my body was still bent up in a little ball in the machine hanging out of the seatbelt upside down so we undone the seatbelt and when we did of course my body just collapsed on my on my head and um, that was just an excruciating pain that I can't really put into words. I, I'm assuming it would feel similar to being, you know, hit with a with a lightning strike. And uh, and it wasn't until we were able to pull my body out straight. So I was literally, you know, my legs were dangling out the open door of the other side of the machine and I was able to find, you know, a little bit of, I suppose, reprieve or relief with my breathing I was able to then continue panting and and essentially that's that's you know that's what I did for the rest of the day so while this was going on as I mentioned we had a second helicopter thank God flying with us that day and he was obviously trying to get us on the UHF and couldn't so he flew to find out what was going on which was just a matter of finding the cattle and following back to the tail because essentially we had to be somewhere and so Luckily, the second pilot um, spotted the wreck, knowing that he couldn't land there because of the the timber. You know, he made the decision to fly back to stock camp and pick up another person, which was my brother-in-law, and they grabbed an axe from off one of the Toyotas and and flew back and dropped the axe out of the 
helicopter, which the pilot then used to to clear, you know, essentially a landing pad. They basically came over to do essentially exactly what the pilot was doing, which was which was not much. There was not much you could do, you know. Um, if we if we had to try to so so Rob, them. I just have to clarify. So at this point, you are out of the helicopter, lying flat, but completely immobile and in quite some pain. Is no, that right? I'm still I'm still in the helicopter at this stage. Um, the machine's still laying um, pretty well upside down on the passenger side, and I'm still laying across right. what you know what I could of the machine. Uh, we didn't want to shift me because essentially we didn't want to kill me. Um, Right, and the whole time I'm I'm constantly just focusing on my breathing and, and focusing on on staying conscious. And um, and uh, my brother-in-law who was there, he was he was the guy that dropped the axe out of the chopper. He had done a fair bit of work at the nearby Tenemai gold mine, and um, and he was aware of the fact that you know we were we I'm sure we could have picked up a a, a medic from the mine, and of course you know by this stage. Everybody else at the stock camp was aware that there'd been a chopper crash. Nobody went into any details as to what was involved. But then I believe Dad was on the satellite phone who had rung the homestead, which is where, you know, my wife and, and our two little babies were and my and my mother and my sisters. And so they then got on the telephones to ring the Royal Flying Doctors to try and find out if there was a rescue helicopter or or someone in the vicinity or someone in the area that could come and, you know, essentially save me. And while this was going on, they, they said, yeah, no, go get the medic from the mines. So the second mustering helicopter flew, you know, the 90Ks back to the Tenemai Gold Mine. And, uh, and luckily it was, everything was just extremely lucky that the, uh, the medic had actually just flown in and landed that same morning um, from, wow. from Darwin, I believe. And so um, she grabbed the bare necessities that she could. She could only take so much with her because they were only in a in an R twenty two, and uh, and luckily one of those things was a was an oxygen bottle. And so uh, the raw flying doctors from Alice Springs they'd already got going um, via aeroplane, and they'd flown the the seven hundred and thirty k's out to the airstrip at the homestead. But unfortunately, that was still. 50 kilometres from where I was and where I was, you couldn't land an aeroplane. Are you just concentrating on breathe, 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 or are you personally able to be part of this whole process of how to how to get you rescued? Like where where's your head at? Yeah, no, at the at the time, um, my only mindset was to to try and stay conscious, uh, to try and focus on my breathing and and um, I remember uh, while all this is going, these are all decisions getting made in the background, and, and a lot of it was right there at the at the crash site with a satellite phone, and then the you know the the I suppose the bulk of it was was at the homestead with you know with my wife and and mother, you know trying to find a way to get us out of the scrub. And um, what we did know at the time was that I had suffered a spinal injury. So there's no way in the world we were going to sit me up, chuck me in the front seat of a of a mustering helicopter, you know, an R22, and fly me back. Uh, we also knew that there was no way we were going to put me on a stretcher and put me on the back of a Toyota and drive me 
you know, the only way to get to me was was via helicopter and that was in and out. So anybody that came to the crash site that day was airlifted in and out. We were just really, really fortunate. We we had a mate in Mark Sullivan who owned a, his own private R44. And uh, and for anyone that doesn't know, it's got the the back seat essentially. It's a it's a similar machine, but it's got the back seat. So he flew, uh, you know, well over a thousand kilometres to an Aboriginal community, and he picked up a a full body stretcher from the the clinic there, and then he flew through and landed at the airstrip at the station, and he picked up uh, one or two of the 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 raw flying doctors, and then he flew them out and landed. Uh, as close as he could to where the crash site, crash site was. So then the real rescue mission started. You know, all these little baby steps that had taken hours and hours and hours to achieve were finally starting to to basically bear fruit in getting me out of the helicopter and getting me back to the to the flying doctors, and then obviously getting me to a hospital. So the the medic that had flown in from the from the gold mine. Absolutely, hands down, undoubtedly saved my life because knowing now what I know about spinal injuries, there's no way in the world my body should have been able to survive all those hours on the very limited uh, breathing ability that I had um, because everything from right up high in my neck, just, just below my head, had actually stopped working. And every minute that goes on, things were starting to shut down and and then when the flying doctors got finally got airlifted in uh, with the with the R44, they were then able to um, to put me on the on the stretcher and, and put me in the machine. And and you know it's it's one of those things you, you would think you just drag a person out of a helicopter, but the way that I was trapped in, my uh, my father actually used uh, a pair of fencing pliers and his leatherman, which had a serrated blade on it. To, to cut through the metal of the, the roof of the helicopter so that they could get, you know, the brace around my neck and do it the right way to get me on the full body stretcher. And and once they did that, it was still, you know, it was still over an hour before they actually tried to, you know, throw me in the helicopter to fly me out of there. But they they flew me back to the to the airstrip where the aeroplane and the and the RFDS was waiting for me. My wife Sarah and, and two children were ready to hop in the aeroplane and go for a fly with Dad. And, uh, yeah, basically the doctors secured my airways and then they, they they put me into a coma and, yeah, I don't really remember the next, you know, week and a bit. So essentially I went down to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and, uh, and went straight into um, the ICU unit. Holy moly, Rob. Okay, I mean, your story is giving me chills, to be honest. So how long... Were you in intensive care for? Do you know? Yeah, I was in. I was in ICU for three months. I think the biggest thing that I remember through those those really scary days of of ICU was just how selfless uh, my wife is. You know, trying to trying to manage two little kids on her own, which is that's that's not the huge feat. It's the fact that she was still capable of putting makeup on to come in of a morning just to lean over her completely crippled husband and say good morning. Um, it's the little things like that that are just unbelievable. You know, her dedication to the whole situation is is just absolutely f- phenomenal. All this is going on while she's 
still trying to breastfeed a, a six-month-old baby. And and uh, a lot of the time, even though I couldn't see her, I knew that she was laying on the floor somewhere trying to catch a sleep. And, you know, she was always the first one there when I woke up and she was the last one there at night. She was probably living on two hours sleep a night and all this sort of thing because she wanted to be there in case there was something I needed, which sounded ridiculous at the time. But, yeah, just phenomenal. Wow. Looking at now compared with then, have you regained some movement or control of parts of your body over that 13-year period? No, uh, absolutely nothing that's functional outside of um, the ability to drive a, a powered wheelchair. Um, so I've got the little bit of movement in my right shoulder um, and just with the use of gravity and having my arm placed perfectly on the joystick, I, I can, yeah, I can cruise around in a wheelchair, which was, you know, a very lengthy process learning how to do that because it's very hard to talk to a body that, that isn't listening. Right. And essentially that's what the spinal cord um, provides is, you know, that pathway to to send messages and I don't have that anymore. So it's a whole new way of sending an information to that part for it to move. And I mean, sometimes it does it by itself and, and I will run up a wall, but um, yeah, nine times out of 10, I've got control of it. Look, that's just, that's incredible. And what, what's really incredible to me, even further and beyond this story that this harrowing tale that you've, you've walked us through you are still very much today on the land, though you're no longer in the Northern Territory. You and your wife are now relocated in Queensland. And you are an inspirational uh, landowner and still farming. Could you tell me a little bit about that, your operations, what you do, despite the limitations that you have physically? You are as mentally acute as you ever were. So could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so Sarah and I, we didn't want to allow this injury to change what our long-term goals were. I wanted to be a father as long as I could remember. And, and I had a terrific father and role model, and, uh, and I wanted to be better than him with my kids, and hopefully my kids will be better than I was with their kids, and so it goes. But, you know, the, the whole idea of mentor, mentoring and coaching and, you know, helping develop another human being is just an incredible honour and challenge at the same time. So the only type of person that I could ever be is the one that I just lived the last 27 years being. I didn't want to um, completely change who I was just because of this injury. And, you know, and we wanted to give our kids the type of life that both Sarah and I had, having all the luxuries of growing up on a property where you've got responsibilities and, and there's always something to do and, and um, you know, there's more excitement than a TV or a computer game and it generally happens outside. And so that's the type of lifestyle we wanted to provide for our kids. And um, I think the, the real success story of what we've done and been able to achieve comes off Sarah's ability to, she really didn't have a choice uh, but to grow and develop new skills and learn all these, you know, new things. Like I, we, we still joke about 
Sarah's 30th birthday present, which was a, um, oh, at the time it was the state-of-the-art welding helmet and some welding gloves, you know, because for us to go and be back on the land, someone's got to do the welding. And so that's someone, Sarah. Everything that we've been able to achieve, even though the idea and mentally I may be astute to be able to orchestrate and organise and, and achieve these things, it was Sarah that's, that's really pulling all the pieces together in the background. Yeah, that, oh, I don't know many women that would, would pull on a job like that. That's love for you, Rob. That is love. Yeah, my word it is. Yes, yeah. definition of love, Sarah. Yeah. yeah, it is. So, yeah, so we, we made the decision when we, we realised that the Northern Territory is too big for us. It was, it was too remote. So we thought we'd move to Queensland. We, we had siblings living over in this, in this sort of gin-gin Queensland area, and so we thought it made sense to, if we're going to move somewhere, we could move close to family. So that's what we did. The other big, two big points was the fact that it's got a terrific climate. Uh, which is something that my body struggles with, is, the, is being able to control its own climate. And, uh, and then, you know, the big one was to try and get support, you know, to help out personally. So that's why we moved to this area. And, yeah, over the last uh, seven years, we've bought into, into, uh, into 5,000 acres of, of cattle country. At times, we've run up to 1,000 head of cattle ourselves, um, but we, we generally sit... Uh, you know, somewhere around about that 700 head of cattle all up. Yeah, and the kids are just starting to get to an age now where, where, they're, where they're being useful. Look, this has just been such a wonderful journey. Um, has there been uh, for you, I guess, uh, lessons learned or a change in attitude towards life as a result of, of your accident 13 years ago? No, I don't, I don't think that this injury defines me who I am, and I certainly don't give it the luxury of, of allowing it to. It's just a physical injury that my body no longer works, but who I am is still who I am within myself. Um, if I don't look down, you know, I can pretend to myself that I'm still the same person cruising around. I think the impact of an injury like this on a, on a person, you know, a lot of people get blindsided thinking that that person must do it really tough. But when you've got a, a loving family that make the decision not to run away from it, I think they're the ones that carry the, the heavy burden, especially the, the physical side of it. Every day is a learning curve regardless of, of, uh, of being a quadriplegic. But yeah, I just, I don't know that there'll ever come a time where thank you will be big enough um, when you've got the top support that, that I've had. Rob, thank you so much for coming to tell us your story today. I wish you and Sarah and your two wonderful children absolutely the best. And I'm just, yeah, really almost overwhelmed. You, you're such an inspirational person, um, intellectually, mentally, spiritually. You are so 100% still the same person and just continuing with your life. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you, Lana. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. <laughs>